The title of the message is Power, Love, and a Sound Mind. I love that, all right? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. So let me ask you a question. Looking at society, our generation, America, the world, do you ever feel that God is losing? You ever feel like, you know, he just doesn't have the strength that he once had, that darkness is overcoming the light, that Christianity is losing value and power because after all, you know, it's not really trending, you know, on Twitter or something like that. Um, Hey, perspective. The problem is not Jesus. I mean, Jesus is not any less real and powerful than he's ever been. Can I hear an amen to that, all right? And, And Paul said that the gospel is the power of God. It's an influence. It's a plan that will never be stopped We are moving somewhere. We are moving towards the return of Jesus to establish his kingdom on planet earth where you have heaven and earth integrated, kind of put together like pieces of of a Lego set. However, listen, this is important for us to know that the first time in American history, we are actually officially living in a post-Christian generation. Barna in 2018 revealed it may come as no surprise that the influence of Christianity in the United States is waning. Uh, Rates of church attendance, religious affiliation, belief in God, prayer, and Bible reading have been dropping for decades. Americans' beliefs are becoming post-Christian and concurrently religious identity is changing. And then he said this, intergeneration Z, born between 1999 and 2015, and they are the first truly post-Christian generation. Now, interestingly, Dr. Brown, who was going to be with us in a few weeks, he, he wrote a blog this last week, and he offered perspective as to why this is, why we are now, in the first time in American history, a post Christian generation, and he noted a few things, and I just want to underscore them quickly. Number one, he said many young people actually grew up in our country the last 25, 30 years in a super, kind of superficial Christian homes that held beliefs but not convictions. And there's an old adage that, you know, Christians hold beliefs but it's convictions that actually hold Christians. They not only know what they believe, but why they believe it, and it has a transforming impact upon their life. But he's saying, the last 25, 30 years, unfortunately, uh, too many have not experienced a transformative faith, that, that young people did not see that in their parents. Two, he said that the messages of the last 25 years has lacked an urgency that the bar has been set too low and it needs to be set higher, an urgency to follow Jesus. And then he said that the church was actually not ready for the onslaught of how technology and social media would be a conduit of anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Christian propaganda. Fourthly, he said Generation Z has grown up with a radical relativism in the form of LGBT activism that has done a great job portraying Christians as hostile, primitive, bigots. So it's like, who wants to associate with them? So now we are in officially a post-Christian culture, and the breakdown is happening very fast. You know, know, one of the things I like to do when I go to the beach, I, 
I'm so, I'm so inspired by the lifeguards. I, lifeguards are just such studs. Do you mind if I say that? I mean, they're awesome, right? Men and women, that's maybe not the right way to say. Okay, anyways, but there they are. And they're just like, and they're, and they're like always having, you know, facing the beach and, you know, watching after the well-being of those in the waters. And they're very well aware of the riptides, the currents. And, you know, and over time, as like most of us, you're able to, to see these riptides, these currents. And, and of course, we have children and grandchildren where we're concerned about them because uh, it, they can lead to, to dangerous things and, and harmful things and stuff. And, and recently, I was at the beach, and I, I actually saw these two young women, and they were, they were, it was windy, and there was, there was a major riptide, and they were going out, and they were having so much fun, and they were on this, like, they were in this like big blown up balloon type craft thing that was just really weird and they're sitting on top of it and they got caught in a riptide. And, and, and I'm thinking, first of all, I, I, I saw it before it happened kind of a thing, at least projecting concern and fear that it was going to take place. And, and then the wind hit them. They, they slipped off their big balloon craft looking thing and, and I was thinking, this is so dangerous. I was watching this. And, and they began to flail. And uh, you're thinking, Greg, did you jump in after them? No, I'm old. I'm just watching. Okay. So, but, I, but these young guys just came. I loved it. They just came off the beach. I'm telling you, they swam out to these kids. And, and they, really, they rescued them. I think they saved their life. Now, why am I mentioning it? Trying to give you a picture like in our culture, man, there's some dangerous rips. And the currents of a, of a breakdown is happening very, very fast, okay? Now, here's the thing. I'm just going to state what's obvious and real. You have marriage that has been redefined. No small thing, by the way. First time in actually history, right? You have actually gender fluidity that's been normalized. So in one case, you had a 15-year-old boy who wanted to play in the girls basketball, not trying to be negative or vibe, just stating some facts, wanted to play on the girls basketball team and wanted actually to dress with the the gals and the 15-year-old girls in their locker room. And actually the federal government threatened the school that if they did not allow it, they would withhold funding. This is the world in which we live. Witchcraft is the fastest growing religion in our country, surpassing, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the Presbyterians, we live in, a, in the screen age, okay, of distraction, okay, of addiction to sensualism that's rewiring males' brains and emasculating males at the same time. In addition, our country is driven by corporate America, not intrinsically evil, but it drives consumerism, the mentality. What's in it for me? I'm committed so long as my expectations are being met. Commercialism, populist, is it, uh, it, it, will people buy it? Would people be attracted to it? How can we, you know, spur on uh, what is novel and things? And these are values actually contrary to following Jesus because we're to deny ourselves and, and we are to stand strong even though others don't stand with us. Here's the point. Things are actually worth living. But the good news is things are also ripe. They're ripe for revival, for a, for a generation to come to Jesus. And in history, great works of the Lord have taken place in dark times. Are you guys with me on this? Now, it's like, let's get back to context. It's also really dark at this time. 
This is, the be, this is the beginning of followers of Jesus that's exploding throughout the known world. Paul at this time, pinning the very book that we just read, 2 Timothy chapter 1, that's where we're at, verse 6 and 7, he's in prison. He's already stood before the most powerful man of the world, named the Emperor Nero, who has been married twice, both to men. So this is a, this is a dark culture, the, the gospel, the worship of the Lord God of Israel, the plan of God from eternity past to eternity future through Israel is now spreading throughout the world through the great pioneer apostle evangelist of Paul and others. But it's a dark time and there's increasing persecution and there's increasing threats. And the temptation is to be silenced. The, t- the currents are intense, okay? And Timothy is like the son of Paul, not biologically, but in the faith. So there's a temptation, no doubt, because he's looking at his spiritual father, who's about ready to be put to death in Rome, and he's feeling it. He's feeling what? Um, I mean, think of Nazis, you know, like arresting some leader in a community. And one of the first questions is, tell me who's with you. Tell me, you know, who's, who's you know, with your cause I mean, Timothy, no doubt, is feeling threatened. And this is why Paul is responding, and he's saying, look, you need to stir up, fan the flame of your gift. God has not given us a spirit of cowardice or paralysis or parked car. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. Can I hear an amen to that, right? So watch, context today is different than context 2,000 years ago, but the solution is the same. The solution is the same. What is it? Guys, like, let the Lord speak to you afresh. Look at verse 6. Again, I remind you, stir up the gift of God. That is a gift of the Holy Spirit, is an endowment. He's given every Christian a gift. When he says stir up, it means to kindle the fresh or to keep in full flame or loosely stoke the fire, get fired up. And actually, last week we talked about how the Holy Spirit is likened to fire, wind as well, and, and the dove and oil, but, but fire, of course, spreads. And we're not to quench the Spirit, put out the fire. And we ask the question, can we fan the flame? Can we do things that would help fan the flame in our own life for personal revival? And we, and we noted three things. One is, you guys, it's critical, listen, that we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us, which is simply really another way of saying that we actually heighten the value of hearing God's Word. Can I hear another amen to that? We take it extra serious, okay? Because sometimes it's like, okay, I've heard stuff like that. No, like right now we want to be sensitive to the leading, gifting, empowering uh, of the Spirit. It's like I love this picture in Ezekiel 37. <laughs> we were praying about this. When the Lord told Ezekiel, prophesy, okay, just, just get this picture, to the dead bones, which actually speaks of Israel. Okay, prophesy, they're dead, right? They're dry and dead, prophesy. And so as he begins to speak to it, they, they start to rattle. Before there's flesh and before, before Israel becomes a nation, that's kind of the picture. Okay, th- there's this rattling of the dead bones, and it's a, it's a picture of how the Holy Spirit, okay, before we come to full strength and full maturity, there's these rattlings, there's this work of the Spirit. Spurgeon said this, 
Since apart from the Spirit, we are powerless, we must value greatly every movement of His power. Notice the fact of the shaking and the noise, noises even before there was any sign of life. And I think that if we want the Spirit of God to bless us, we must be on watch to notice everything He does. Like what? Like right now what He's doing in our hearts. It's like, no, no, we're going to, you know, information is cheap in our culture, but the, but, but the Word of God is not cheap. The Holy Spirit is divine, and He is here. We value that reality. Therefore, give ear to the Spirit, cut out all compromise, and return to our first love. And that's what we want to be doing. God, help us to bring personal revival. And what we now want to do, because we talked about it last week, is we want to focus in upon actually verse Seven, which is like, what does it mean that God has not given us a spirit of fear? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind? And the first point is, we have it up on the screen, is, is God has actually laid his hands on us. And I know that sounds kind of weird. So what does that mean? And we have here, look at verse 6. Paul is reminding Timothy that there was a time of divine transference and dedication in his life, that Paul had laid his hands on him, and the idea is something was transferred to him. There was a gifting that was transferred to Timothy, okay? But in this culture, biblically, Hebraically, to lay hands on speaks of not only transference, but dedication as well. So what Paul is saying is, watch this, he's saying, Timothy, The Lord, remember, the Lord gifted you, empowered you. And not only that, but your life has been dedicated for a divine purpose. Like, what is it? Well, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Check it out. Like, what gift are we talking about? Well, in Timothy's case, chapter 4, verse 5, we see it tells us, Paul speaking to him, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So in other words, Timothy, you have been given the gift to make Jesus known. You've been given a communication gift. Okay, God has not given us a spirit of fear, paralysis. Man, you need to keep making the Lord known. In fact, please look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He actually says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus, who's going to judge the living and dead at his appearing and at his kingdom, Preach the, can someone tell me the next word? Word, right? So look up here for a second. Watch this. Here's, here's Paul. Paul is in prison. We're going to draw this out even further. He's, he's already stood at his first defense before Nero. Okay, he's escaped a death up to this point. But he says that his departure is at hand, that he's about ready to launch to kind of pull up the anchor and depart. He knows that that is going to take place soon. In other words, he's going to be put to death. And so what he's saying to Timothy is, Timothy, you've been handed a baton. Okay, I mean, God called Israel to be a light to the world. It's fulfilled in the Messiah. And it's your turn to carry the torch. He's coming again. Keep moving. In fact, please look with me in verse 6 of chapter 4. Good job, you guys. Chapter 4, verse 6. 
when he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand, kind of pull anchor, there's going to be a departure. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Timothy, Timothy, I, I've run my race, okay? I've finished, okay? Timothy, you have the baton now. Okay, so look up here, my precious brothers and sisters. Okay, that's, that's the context. Speaking to Timothy 2,000 years ago, okay, we, it's a different context today. I don't know if there's any Timothys in this room. Different context today. But the solution and the calling in principle are the same. Okay, so it's like, okay, well, the Lord has laid his hands on us, which means that there's been a transference of Jesus' righteousness. He became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. So we are right with God. Our sins are forgiven. Can I hear an amen to that? And the Bible says the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, which means everyone in this room has been given a gift to, to, to be a blessing to actually others. And we have been dedicated. We, are de we actually are called saints, which means we are set apart. We are a counterculture to a culture that is breaking down. Now, I just wonder how the Holy Spirit is just rattling your bones on that. They just, because allow him afresh to bring that perspective. So let me ask you, do you believe the Lord in principle has laid his hands on you? And there's been this transference, righteousness of Jesus, sins forgiven, right? And a gifting of the Holy Spirit. And you have been set apart for divine purpose. That is just a flat out reality. And the second thing is, this is our second point, that God has actually given us the spirit of power, love, and sound mind to live it out. Now let's, let's break this down. Paul uses the term power actually 45 times in his writings. The question is, what does it mean and what kind of power are we talking about? We're talking about the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power, okay? But what does that look like? You know, it's interesting in our culture, uh, power is seen as influence and power is influence. Uh, in social media, they have what's called influencers, so people who have a lot of followers and maybe they're selling something or maybe they're speaking into their life some sense of encouragement and they could have 10,000 followers, 100,000 followers, 20 million followers and they're known as influencers. So the idea, check it out, of, of power is to influence and that's true. And the Holy Spirit through us is, wants to influence. But power is not just to influence others. Power is not being influenced by others. So it's not just that we influence, but actually power is being able to stand alone. To stand alone. So, so let me just say this. Like you may be the only believer in your family, or you may be the only believer at work, or you, you, you may be at a time where you're feeling a sense of isolation because there's others who are not holding to similar beliefs or they're not followers of Jesus and stuff. But for you 
to remain strong by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit amidst that, that is influence. I mean, I'm proud of you. That is so awesome. I mean, look, if you go back to chapter 4, please turn back there real quick. Maybe you're already there. I mean, look what Paul says in verse 16. At my first defense, no one stood with me. I'm in Rome. No one is in the courtroom. I'm standing before the emperor. No one is with me. But he goes on to say in verse 17, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. So like, Power in our culture, oh, like how powerful. Look at the influence. They have 10,000 followers, you know, millions of followers. Okay, power is influencing others, but power is also not being influenced by others, particularly not being influenced by a culture that is broken down, that needs Jesus. Can I hear a big amen to that? And therefore, therefore, power is actually ultimately being in, under the influence of God himself. Which means, therefore, that I, I may have to stand alone and not be influenced by breakdown. I mean, this to me epitomizes what it actually means to pick up the cross. Because to pick up the cross in first century is the lowest form of execution in the Roman world. You're the outcast of society. In context, when Jesus mentions that, they're thinking we're going to be a part of a popular movement. Jesus is saying it's going to start small like a mustard seed, and it's going to explode throughout the world. But you must be willing to deny yourself, pick up the cross and follow me. It starts small, but it's going to explode. Okay, so power is also the ability, I'm going to stand strong, even though there's the currents of narcissism and sensualism and relativism and hedonism. Paul says, and we have in Ephesians 1, 19 up on the screen, it says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Whoa, got a lot of power at play in a believer's life. There's a lot of information I'm communicating, but I just want to break it down. Like, what are you talking about? You're talking about the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 8, 11, indwells us. That's power. You have the presence of Jesus never leave you, Hebrews 13, 5. That's power. I'll tell you another power is the Holy Spirit works through us. We're a conduit of the Spirit to convict the world, to bring, to bring a judgment, a conviction that the core problem of man is broken relationship with God. It's sin. Therefore, we need Messiah. John 16, verse 8. And what power is, we're a part of a plan that's never going to break down. I mean, Jesus said, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and power and great glory. It's like everything will be shaken. In fact, things are being shaken now. And what we do for the Lord in his word and the people of God and the kingdom of God and the love of God and the truth of God, those realities will remain. Everything else will be shaken. The spirit of power, that's, that's a lot of power. Same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the plan of God, that's power. And, and that's the work of the spirit. That's right relationship with God. The, the second thing he says is, we're talking about love too. Power, love, and a sound mind. What is love? Well, the Bible says God is love, and the fruit of the spirit is love. And 
I mean, Christianity is about love. It's about loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our neighbors, ourselves, the first two great commandments. But um, what does it look like? I mean, let's look at it more specifically. Hey, we have one word for love in the English language, and it's the word, can someone tell me? Love, right? Good job. Okay, in the Greek, there's four, right? There's like family love, there's physical love, eros, we got a word erotic, uh, there is uh, brotherly love, phileo, and then there's the word being used here, agape, which is a love that's a selfless love. It's, a, it's based on principle, it's others-oriented, and it's a command. It's, so therefore, it's not driven by emotions, because uh, you can't command emotions, right? I, I couldn't command you to be sad, and I couldn't command you to be happy. Those are emotions. But the, there's a command to love. Like, what does it look like? Well, in the context of the fact that the Lord identified all authority is given to his son, what is Jesus doing the day that he is betrayed? Nisan 14, Passover, ultimately on the cross. He is washing the disciples' feet, including Judas's. So he actually goes low, humble, others-oriented, cleansing, washing, nourishing, okay? It's like to go big is to go low. He's going low. And, he, and as I mentioned, he's even washing Judas's feet, which tells us in principle, you do not have to like someone to love them. And you do not have to agree with them to love them. And you don't have to compromise your convictions to love them. And, and, and say, well, what is love? Love is, it, love is an influence that's others-oriented. So I'm going to influence this person and fight for what protects them and nourishes, that grows them in the person that God has intended them to be. And it's actually the action of love that, that leads to being further led by God. Because I think of Acts chapter 13, Peter and John, there's this man who's paralyzed, he, he needs some money, he's at the gate beautiful, and, and what do they do? But they, they stop, and they take an interest in him. They just, they just focus on him for a moment, and they don't actually have what he's asking for. But they do have things to give him. Like he wants money, and they don't have money. Because their wives are shopping in Jerusalem. No, just kidding. That's so dumb. So dumb. Okay, forget it. Just so dumb. Okay, let's go back. Like, anyways, but they're there. Okay, but they have something to give. Like, first, just watch this. First, they just give this guy their attention. They just stop. Now, that's, now that's a picture of being outside of themselves. They're just, What? What do you, I can see this condition you have, they stop. And so there's this interaction of silver and gold I don't have, but what I have, I, I give, what I have, I give to you. Like, we, we have lots to give to others' people. We have a listening ear, we have empathy, we have compassion, we have the truth of the gospel, we have hope, we have experience of the Lord's a work in our own life to encourage others. Can I hear a big amen to that? It's like, but here's the thing. If we never stop and take an interest in others, it, 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 well, we quench potentially something that the Lord wants to accomplish. 
And, and then it ended up with a, a great spiritual gift of actually healing. And this guy was healed. And, and then it led to the proclamation of the gospel with 3,000 coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go back to context of Timothy, watch, watch this. Timothy, you have been giving a gift. And it's, it's a speaking gift, among others, potentially. I'm just trying to deal with the context. And it seems like he's been gifted the gift of evangelism. So, Timothy, Timothy, you must continue to think about others. This is a dying world. You have penicillin, and the world needs it. And God has not given us a spirit of fear, cowardice, parked car. God cannot steer a parked car. You must keep moving. Okay, to be a Christian, you got all the power in the world behind you and in you and alongside of you. You must keep loving. And loving is being outside of yourself. Love loves for the sake of love because the nature of love is to love and to be others-oriented and to protect and to build up. And, and it just, it, it begins with, I'm just going to take an entrance and I'm going to, and you, and I'm going to listen and I'm going to demonstrate care and just never know what can take place after that as the Lord leads. Can I hear an amen to that? But I, I got to tell you, this is counterculture to our culture. We live in a stinking consumer culture where people are just so absorbed with themselves. I mean, I just think it's so interesting. You know, God has not given us a spirit of fear paralysis, parked car, but movement, keep moving. Moving how? Love. It's about love. It's about being others-oriented. Care, listen, plant seeds, others What is the Spirit saying to you? How is he ministering to you with regard to this? Super important. And then a sound mind. I love it. The word speaks of a balanced, rooted Calm, not panicking. So not thrown into confusion by triggers of fear. It's a, it speaks of a disciplined mind. But this sound mind, there's no doubt, is a result of being informed and rooted in the truth. You guys, turn with me to Acts chapter 26. I want to show you something. For time's sake, I, I'm going to have to kind of minimize the reading that I wanted to do, but we'll pick up a fair amount of actually Acts chapter 26. I, this is just one of the great dramas in Scripture because you have Paul, who's actually in Israel this time. He's in Caesarea, and he's standing before the two most powerful regional leaders. He's standing before the Roman governor of Judea, which is Festus, so kind of in the line of Pilate. So Pilate was a few governors back. And he's also standing before Herod Agrippa II, the chief Jewish leader, right? And they're in Caesarea, port city there, and, and they're actually preparing Paul to go to Rome. So they want to hear his case, right? Second Timothy is, he's already in Rome, he's already stood before the emperor, and his life is soon going to be taken, all right? So that's kind of the context. But if we go back, and I just love this, you know, he's, he's telling these guys his story. And it, and, and so I, I, I actually want to just pick it up, verse 12. He says, Thus occupied as I journeyed 
to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday. So he's telling his personal story about being a follower of Jesus. O king, along the road, I saw light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me saying in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's the idea of you're resisting, you're, you're trying to oppose or resist what is true. It's a goat is a stick, so you're kicking back at it. So I said, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, that's a good name for a church, <laughs> rise, okay, and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which yet will be revealed to you, and I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you. I send you to Jews, I send you to Gentiles to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan and to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now watch this, verse 19. And therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, do first works befitting repentance. For these Jews reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those things which the prophets and Moses said, would come that the Messiah would suffer. He would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the world. Now look at verse 24. Now, as thus uh, made his defense, now as he thus made this defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Okay? But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God. Then not only you, but also those who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And when he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor, Bernice, and those who sat with him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Okay. Beautiful. Hey, Paul, much learning has, has driven you crazy. You're not of sound mind. Paul answers, no way, man. What I'm speaking is of reason and truth. No, no. Actually, to follow Jesus and embrace the gospel is the most reasonable thing you could ever do. He said, this thing wasn't done in accord. He's making reference to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So the point is, is that our faith is rooted in truth. This faith has monster evidence behind it. And it gives us actually a sound mind to interpret our world, uh, what's happening, 
because God is at play and his plan is unfolding. So we need to lay hold of it. And lastly, point number three is God has called us to be courageous. I mean, that's what he's saying to Timothy, to be courageous. And You know, I, I love what famed actor John Wayne said about courage. He said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. And it tells us that courage is not the absence of fear. Okay? Everyone battles with fear. Okay? So watch this. If you're waiting not to feel the presence of paralysis or scared in some way, you know, um, and you're waiting for all to go away, then to step out and do what God has called you to do, to do the right thing, to forgive. We'll talk about it just a little bit. Um, you could be waiting for a long time. The reality is, is courage is not the absence of fear. It's moving forward with what God wants anyway. And, 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 and Timothy's not the only one that is battling with this fear, reality. Uh, Paul also identified that he battled with fear too. You know, I was reading Joshua chapter one, I think this last week, just musing, I love it so much. And I, I, you know, this is a great turning point, obviously. Children of Israel are entering into the promised land. How many remember the story where the Lord three times told Joshua and the children of Israel, they have to be courageous. You know, I've given you the land, just like step into it and whatever your feet touches, you know, lay hold, possess your possessions, it's done. It's yours, but you're gonna have to be courageous. In fact, he says, be strong and of good courage. And he goes on to say, be strong and very courageous, which just speaks of the fact that they too would battle with uneasiness. Are you sure this is right? Walking around Jericho, are you sure you want us to take AI? Are you sure you want us to possess the, the possessions you've already given to us? And of course, before getting into the promised land, he instructed that the priests would carry the ark into the Jordan, that they needed actually, just check this out, they needed to get their feet wet, which is like, whoa. So just watch this. Before actually they, the children of Israel ever entered the promised land, it wasn't because they fully got it and just, oh, by what they saw gave them confidence, i.e. the Jordan parted. Okay, good, let's go in. No, it was actually this kind of unfolding, organic process that required them to step out in a place of vulnerability and get their feet wet, and then you have the Jordan parting. Are you guys with me on this? So the question I just want to ask you is, you know, where is God calling you to get your feet wet? I mean, is it to, is it to step in the land of forgiveness? Is it to step in the land of sharing your faith? Is it to step in the land, seriously, of repenting of sin and compromising this deadly habit? Is it stepping the land? I'm going to be faithful to my marital vows. Because here's the thing, please hear me. The Lord never promised, he never promised that doing his will would be easy. And he never promised that we would always have this sense of like euphoria or even peace. That it would just like doing this, I just feel great doing it. Never promised it. What he said was, is that the peace comes after the step of getting your feet wet and being obedient. It, that then 
is followed with a sense of well-being. So look, here's the thing. The Holy Spirit's at play. The Lord has laid his hands on us. Can I hear an amen to that? We just have major power and, and just, it's about love. It's about a sound mind reading, rooting what's true. And, and it's about courage. So it's about courage. Where does the Lord want to work courage in your life? I love what President Theodore Roosevelt said years ago, and I'm going to close with this. He says, you know, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or what the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who actually is in the arena, whose face is marred by dust, sweat, and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold, timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. And there's just something about going big. And you know, ultimately going big is going low and loving courageously. So look, if we were to boil this down, we're going to close this in a second. If we are to boil this down, the call here is, is to stir up, fan the flame, get on fire. God has gifted us. Keep moving. There's a land that the Lord wants us to possess. He's never promised it would be easy, never promised we'd have a great sense of well-being as if there's not going to be a, it wouldn't require courage to have heart because it comes through the word heart. It would be scared to death, but we're going to get up and saddle up and step into what we know is right.